you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. So over the next few weeks, you will likely notice a fair amount of repetition. We're going to be singing some of the same songs uh, confessing some of the same things, uh, because sometimes what we most need is to slow down and pay attention. And, and one of the ways we're going to be doing that over the course of Advent is we're going to be looking just at one passage for the course of four weeks. We're going to be looking at this glorious prophecy from Isaiah every week leading up to Christmas Eve. Um, so just to let you know ahead of time, this morning I'm going to be spending a lot of time kind of on what leads to this prophecy and just begin to touch in the first couple of verses as we spend time really hearing what God says to us through the prophet Isaiah. Um, but before I do that, I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, we have uh, in some ways even just prayed and saying thanks be to you for your word. Uh, and in your word is light and wisdom and hope. And we so desperately need to hear it. Um, and so, Father, we ask in this month, even this Sunday, as we seek to turn our attention to what you are telling us, as we seek to turn our attention to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, would you please illumine our hearts, draw us closer to you, that we might see you more clearly and love you more deeply. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my uh, favorite verses in the Bible, uh, perhaps it is for some of you as well, comes from Proverbs. It's, it's a simple command. I won't even read the whole verse right now. It's, trust the Lord with all of your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Perhaps you've heard it. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. 
Now, that verse signals for us that we as Christians will regularly be faced with a decision. Will we put our hope in the promises of God, or will we rely on what makes sense to us? Will we put our hope in the promises of God, or as we're making decisions, will we rely on what makes sense to us? So, you wake up in the morning, and it occurs to you that you have a little bit of time of peace and quiet, and a part of you thinks this would be a really good time to pray. You know that God promises that He blesses prayer, that that's what we need, that God answers prayer. And yet, if you're honest in this moment, prayer seems so, so inconsequential that you're just kind of speaking words into the air. It, it feels so unproductive, and it feels like you'd be getting a whole lot more done if you just went to your email and answered email, and you're faced with a decision, do you put your hope in the promises of God, or do you rely on what makes sense to you in the moment? You're in school, and you have a whole lot of friends who believe things very different from you. Some of them have maybe different religions. Some of them just religion doesn't even matter for them. And, and as you are involved with their lives, and you're seeing that they're just as smart as you, and, and their lives seem to be going just as well as you, you start feeling the inadequacy at times of your faith, and it feels, it feels almost flimsy to believe that someone who lived 2,000 years ago and dying somehow should define everything for your reality, and, and you find yourself feeling this decision, do I put my hope in the promises of God, or do I rely on what makes sense to me? Maybe over the last however many weeks you've been thinking about something that, that God has kind of put on your heart, maybe a sense of a desire to help care for the Haiti orphanage or, or something like that, and, and, and you feel like maybe you should do something, and suddenly in the mail you receive a, a check that you didn't expect, and a part of you goes, you know what, this is exactly what I could do if I wanted to give. But a part of you also says, you know what, this is exactly what it would take for me to go on vacation for a few days in the winter to the Caribbean. Now, you know that God promises that it is a good thing to give and that it's honoring that you are a steward of his finances, and yet it makes so much more sense as you look outdoors to go to the Caribbean. Do you put your hope in the promises of God, or do you choose to rely on what makes sense to you in the moment? It's a decision that you and I, those are in some ways small ones, but we make these decisions again and again, and what I don't think we realize often is that every time we are choosing to lean on our own understanding, to rely on what makes sense, we're actually stepping away from the light and further and further into the darkness. And we see that in, in, the, in the passage and actually what leads up to the passage this morning. In some ways, if you looked at the story of Israel, you see this decision as being central and how they answer this decision as defining their story. So when, when God's people, Israel, first come into the promised land, God gives them this promise of blessing. It's at the end of Deuteronomy, and He says, if you will trust in me, if you will let me be your God, if you will do what I say, I will protect you, I will provide for you, life will be glorious. But if you don't, if you do what in the moment makes sense to you, you will experience my curse and you will be plunged into darkness. 
So when you get to the time of King David and King Solomon, you see probably in the best way God's promises coming true. You have people trusting in God. You have them experiencing you know, military security and prosperity, and everything looks glorious, and people are following God faithfully. But by the time you get to when our prophecy that we just heard is, is delivered, Isaiah, by the time of King Ahaz, two centuries later, we have a very different picture. So, so the thing to know about King Ahaz, who's the king of the southern tribes of Judah, is that you could call him maybe an extreme pragmatist. He always makes this decision based on what makes sense to him in the moment. So when he starts as a king and he looks around and he sees other nations that are stronger than his, and, and he looks and tries to figure out why, he notices these other nations have different ways of worship and different kind of religious principles. And he says, well, that works for them, so we're going to do the same thing. So they have altars to other gods, and, and it even gets worse than that. For Ahaz, he's just so intent on doing whatever works that he is even willing to sacrifice his child on an altar and worship to God. And the question I think maybe we could ask is, how does that happen? How, how do you go from this worship of God that is faithful to a point where it seems to make sense to a king to slaughter his own child because he thinks that's what God wants of him? And the answer is, if we look at Israel's story, is it happens a little bit at a time with one decision after another moving more and more into the darkness so it starts making sense to do something as horrific as that. It's, it's a little bit like, maybe you've heard the story of the, the camel in the tent. It's like this old fable. Um, it goes, you know, one cold night as a man sat in his tent, a camel thrust the flap of the tent aside and looked in. Master, the camel said, please let me put my head in the tent, for it's cold outside. By all means, and welcome, said the man. And the camel stretched his head into the tent. Uh, if I, I might but warm my neck also, he said presently. Put your neck inside, said the man. Soon the camel, who had been turning his head from side to side, said again, you know, it will take but little more room if I put my front legs within the tent. It's difficult standing outside. Well, you may also put your front legs within, said the man, moving a little to make room, for the tent was very small. Could I stand wholly within? asked the camel finally. You know, when I'm standing like this, I'm keeping the tent's door open. Yes, yes, said the man. Come, come completely inside. So the camel came forward and crowded into the tent, but the tent was too small for both. I think, said the camel, that there is not room for both of us here. It will be best for you to stand outside as you are the smaller. There will be then room enough for me. And with that, he pushed the man a little, who made haste to get outside the tent. You, you see the story, the idea of each decision, each thing is small in and of itself, but it creeps and it creeps until there's a complete change of the situation. And that's, that's what happens for Israel. Uh, perhaps it begins with the people noticing other nations and, and and as they trade with them, recognizing the different ways that the other nations worship and recognizing, well, there seems to be something good or something almost beautiful about their forms of worship. 
And then, then they take a, kind of another step, and they say, you know what, some of it actually makes more sense. I mean, why, why do we all have to go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices? And so they, they put altars wherever they want, because it's more intimate with God to sacrifice immediately. And why, why can't we have an image of God? God feels so much closer if we have an image when we're making worship. So, so they make images. Now, they don't abandon God. They still have the temple. They still believe in God. They still call Him their God, but, but they've taken a step further. The camel's head is now in the tent. But, but then, now that that happens, it just starts making more sense to, to let other gods be worshipped because who are they to say that only what they believe is right when so many other people believe otherwise? It's probably better for us to be open-minded and to worship not just God. We'll worship Him, but, but these other gods as well. And now the camel is further into the tent. Until you get to the point that it makes sense to do something as terrible as child sacrifice. Another metaphor, which I've already alluded to, is it's not just the camel, is each decision moves them more into darkness, moves them further and further away from relying on the promises of God. So each decision makes the next decision make more sense, and the next decision make more sense until they're in darkness. And this comes to the climax with Ahaz. Ahaz, the king, who, who has so far abandoned God, God in his kindness sends a messenger. It's a messenger in a time of crisis. So I'll try not to get too much into political intrigue, but it is underpinning Isaiah's prophecy here. So, so you have, at this point, Israel has been divided into two nations. You have the northern tribes and the southern tribes. The northern tribes are still called Israel. The southern tribes are called Judah. Ahaz is the king of Judah, and Ahaz discovers that the northern tribes have decided to join forces with their next-door neighbor, Syria, and they're going to come and try to conquer Judah completely and, and make it theirs. Now, I think it's hard for us, living in a land where we've experienced relative military security for generations, to imagine how terrifying it would be if you were in the situation of being in Judah and knowing that armies with thousands and thousands of soldiers with swords were coming to take you. Because what would be happening if they win is not just a, a minor regime change. What happens is, is houses get burnt down and destroyed. Families are slaughtered. Survivors are made slaves. No one is safe. Everyone is absolutely terrified of this. This is all that the people of Judah could be thinking about, that these northern tribes combined with another nation making their armies so much stronger are coming to take them. And so Ahaz has this decision, and God sends a messenger. He sends Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, if you look at this, it's in chapter 7, calm down, which seems really counterintuitive. Calm down. Don't be afraid. These kings are going to amount to nothing before they attack you. God is the one you should trust in. If you just trust in Him and rest in Him, He will be your salvation. And so in this moment, He gives Ahaz the very decision that we've been talking about. Do you hope in the promises of God that Isaiah has just said, God will provide if you just trust? Or do you choose to lean on your own understanding to do what makes sense in the moment? Now, the thing about when you have lived a life that is completely dependent on making sense is it's almost impossible even to hear 
God's word. For Ahaz, it is so obvious, of course, he's going to do what makes sense to him. And in fact, for all of Judah, of course, they will do what makes sense to them. I mean, wouldn't you, if you have thousands of soldiers coming at you and a man says, don't worry, just trust in a God you can't see, is that what you would do? So, so God's people pretty much at that point say, I'm done with listening to God's word. They do not listen to Isaiah. They turn away from the law of Moses. They, they want to find people who are going to tell them something that seems more relevant, more powerful. So they go to mediums and spiritists, people who can conjure up spirits of the dead and other spirits because they seem so much more authoritative, so much more powerful, so much more instructive. And Ahaz, as he hears this prophecy and he makes a choice, he chooses I'm not going to trust in that. I'm going to trust in something that's so much more believable. See, there's this gigantic nation, Assyria. I mean, they're the bullies of the area. They're terrifying. And Ahaz says, if I can get Assyria on my side, that, that should be enough. So he, he, he sends to Assyria, and he says, rather than trusting in God, he says, I'm going to trust in you, king of Assyria, you are my servant. I'm sorry, I am your servant. I am your son. In other words, you will be God to me. And, and, if, and if that's not clear enough, he takes all of the treasure from the temple, the treasure that was devoted to God, and he sends it to Assyria because the king now is the one that he puts his trust in. And in this moment, the camel has completely entered the tent, and God, the one that they have been worshiping, is completely removed. And for a time, this decision to say, hey, Assyria, could you help me out, seems like a great one. I mean, it makes so much sense. Get military might to conquer military might. And so Assyria comes, and they come and attack the northern tribes, and they decimate the northern tribes. In fact, the, the, the top half of Israel is wiped out. I mean, Probably the equivalent is if you imagine somehow Canada, if the western half of Canada is wiped out, that's what happens here. Vancouver is gone. In fact, not only are they wiped out, but all of the people who lived in this, this area called Galilee, of the tribe of Naphtali, they are removed completely. They are deported to Assyria. The northern tribes are utterly devastated. And so Ahaz breathes a sigh of relief. The, the, the countries that were going to attack him, they're done. But see, there's a problem because the people of Judah have now sold their soul to Assyria. And Assyria is now their master. And Assyria is horrible. They are cruel, and then within just a generation, they are going to attack and almost completely overwhelm the southern tribes. And so in this moment, right before Isaiah's prophecy that we just read comes, you have despair. See, see when, when God is removed, what people don't realize is when God is removed, light is removed, truth is removed, hope is removed, and all that is left is darkness. And we see that, don't we? I mean, we see that even in our nation story. I'm not in any way trying to say that once our nation was pristine and perfect, but but it does seem as God is being removed further and further from our general understanding that more and more there is confusion, there is dissension, there is despair. 
And that's what happens with Assyria. Assyria, with, with the choice for Assyria, Ahaz and the people are plunged into darkness. And so the very end of chapter 8 speaks of how they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. When we have a choice between trusting in the Lord and leaning on His promises and, and doing what makes sense, what we don't realize is every time we move towards what makes sense, we're moving further and further away from the light, and the outcome is confusion and despair. Now, it's in this context it's in this time where God's people are thrust into utter darkness and hopelessness. This is when we get the words that we just heard. And, and what, what we have here is God once again extending to his people an opportunity to return to him. He, he is once again giving them the opportunity to put aside what makes sense to them and to simply trust in his promises. And what Isaiah says is absolutely ridiculous. So, so he, he tells the people of Judah who are in darkness and despairing because they're confused and because they know they're under Assyria and everything's hopeless, he says, look over to Galilee. Remember, Galilee is the place that got decimated. Galilee is the place that is in rubble where all of the people of Galilee are now removed. Galilee is the place that if you look at it, people say, let us be anything but them. He says, look at Galilee. That is where God is going to bring hope and rescue. I mean, let me just read verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Who's her who is in anguish? Well, it says, In the former time, he, that is God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's Galilee. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He's speaking from a future perspective and saying, this place that you look at right now that looks utterly devastated and in ruins, God is going to lift it up. He says, this place that is in despair and darkness, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This people who right now are grieving and cannot possibly imagine anything good, you, verse 3, have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Now, do you understand just how absolutely absurd this is? As the people of Judah who are worried about what's going to happen to Assyria, they look at the single worst place they possibly could look at, the devastated Galilee where there is nothing left. There is no evidence that anything will ever get better. 
You know how there are betting markets right now? Like you can find people who will bet on who's going to be the next president or bet who's going to win whatever. I mean, everything you can bet on. If you had a betting market of if Galilee is ever going to turn itself around, no one would place a bet on it. There is nothing there that would make sense that this would be a place that's going to be okay. And yet God says it's going to be glorious. How? God says, well, let me tell you. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. How is a child being born going to somehow do this? God is telling them something that is almost gobbledygook, that is absurd, that is ridiculous. Do you see what God is doing in, in saying, listen and trust in this? It reminds me a bit of a story of something that happened a few decades earlier with a different prophet, a prophet Elijah. You might know this story. There's this kind of like worship war, this showdown between Elijah and these prophets of Baal, and Elijah's trying to say, you need to worship the right God. And so the way that this, this battle, this showdown happens is they have two altars, and the contest is which one will be able to get their God to light it. You can set up the altar, you can put everything on, but you cannot put a match on it. It's going to be up to God. So first, Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first, and, and they moan, and they cut themselves, and they pray, and of course, that altar does nothing. And so then it's Elijah's turn. And what does Elijah do? He doesn't just pray. He, he takes multiple buckets of water, and he drenches again and again and again this altar so that it's sopping with water. It is impossible for anything to come alight. And then he prays, and <laughs> this fireball comes and consumes the altar in a moment. And the reason he does this, of course, is to show this is no coincidence. This is God. And that's what God is doing here. God is saying, all right, I'm going to choose the least likely place, Galilee. He's drenching his prophecy with a bucket of water. And I'm going to choose the least likely way, a child, another bucket of water. And, and guess what? This is how I'm going to rescue the world. It doesn't make sense. And that, of course, is exactly the point. God is choosing to do something that is utterly foolish in the eyes of the world to expose the foolishness of our wisdom. Why in the world do we think, when it comes to things of God, that we can make sense in our own mind of what He's doing? I mean, you and I, we have a hard enough time understanding each other I mean, we're constantly getting confused by each other. We have a hard enough understanding ourselves. So why do we think that when it comes to the things of God, yeah, that's something that I'm an expert in? Why, why when we're talking about someone who has existed before the universe, who spoke and brought quarks and atoms and supernovas into existence, who knows the end from the beginning, why should we say, well, you know what, if I have to decide between what he says and my thinking, I'm going to trust myself. Do we realize how utterly ridiculous it is that when we have a choice between leaning on the promises of God and leaning on our own small, finite understanding, we go with our gut? Wisdom is simply to say, I don't understand it, but God said it. And that's enough. I don't understand it, but God said it, and, and that's enough. 
Because here's the thing, whenever God says something is true, it is always true. And whenever God says something will happen, it always, always happens, no matter how absurd or ridiculous it might sound. And, and here's the thing, we know that here. We have just spoken of something that seems completely impossible, and yet we have lived many centuries later, and we know what happens. We know what happens in Galilee, right? We know 700 years later, we know a child is born that seems inconspicuous to a humble family, and he grows up in Galilee, and not just any place in Galilee, Galilee, but Nazareth, a place that is so podunk that people say, can anything good come from there? And yet as Jesus grows and becomes a man, he proclaims the kingdom of God is at heaven, repent and believe the gospel, and there is light, and there is glory, and miracles are performed, and Matthew, in case you're missing it, in his gospel says, and this was to fulfill the prophecy. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he, was made, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. God has done exactly what he said he would, no matter how ridiculous it sounded at the time. And then he does something even more ridiculous. His son chooses to be humiliated, to be shamed, to die a death on the cross that as everyone looks at, whether it's his followers or his enemies, they say this is foolishness, this is terrible, this is defeat, but what is happening is victory over sin and death and all of the enemies of God, and it's glorious. You see how God uses things that look foolish in our eyes to expose the foolishness of our wisdom, and he says wisdom is to listen and trust in my promises, because if I say it is true and I say it will happen, it will. You know, that proverb that I said at the very beginning says, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on, on your own understanding, and all your ways seek to know him, and he will make your path straight. And I think that last line, he will make your path straight, what's implied is the more we learn to lean on the promises of God, the more it starts making sense to us. And the more it starts making sense to us, the easier it is to lean until we start seeing the pathway forward of what it looks like to follow the light of the world. But it begins with us choosing to not lean on our understanding, but just believe that if God said it, it's enough. I remember a number of years ago, I was working with a church that was serving uh, the homeless, and I met a remarkable man. Um, he was someone who looked in his 50s, he probably was younger than that, but he had just lived such a hard life, and he struggled with schizophrenia. You know, he, he spoke very openly about how he had discovered that he just can't trust his own thinking. He can't trust what's going on in his mind, he can't trust the voices that are in his head, he knows that they're unreliable. But then he kind of lifted up his tattered Bible and he said, but I, I know I can trust this because God said it, and that means it's true. That man was more sane than oftentimes I am or many of us are. Trust the Lord with all your heart 
And, and don't lean on our own understanding. In all your ways, seek to know him, and he will make straight your path, because he is the light of the world. We're going to respond, and every week for the next few weeks, we're going to be using this, this same confession. Um, I invite you just to kind of take a moment, because we're going to be confessing together, but sometimes if we do it too quickly, it's hard to kind of enter into it, to look in, at the words that we're going to be saying together. In just a moment, I will lead us in this corporate confession, but just first look so that you know what you're saying ahead of time. Would you please confess with me where the print is bold? Heavenly Father, your Son is our truest hope, worthy of our undivided faith. He is the source of our deepest joy, and in him alone do we have peace. Yet we confess that we so often look elsewhere for these things. We place our hope in the promises of this world and we trust the things we feel we can control. We seek satisfaction and peace in the pleasures and comforts of the moment. We confess to you and to each other that we are idolaters. We have sinned against you who love us. Unfilled and ashamed, we ask for your forgiveness. By your Spirit, Turn our hearts towards Jesus. Help us to look to him for all that we need, that we might serve him faithfully to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear from the very same prophet, the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah declares that the great light that God has promised comes into the world to take our sins away. Here's what Isaiah says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, your sins are forgiven, and you are at peace with God. Thanks be to God.